This fellow Ronaldo is a cod. Arsene Wenger has been in Japan for a year. He doesn't know anything about English football. I'm so happy, believe me. I'm so happy. Happy New Year. Con Giovanni, incredible. Dribble, 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 dribble. It's the history of the Tottenham. I have nothing to say. I'm so sorry, I have nothing to say. Last week, Wayne Rooney announced his retirement from the game. He was the leading England and Manchester United goalscorer, but he leaves behind a strange legacy in the game, having started playing at the age of 16, but now retiring at 35. Hello and welcome to the Total Football Podcast. I'm your host, Egan Harris, and joining me is Andrew Conway. Hello, Declan. Andrew, where do you stand on the career of Wayne Rooney? Well, I was never... When Wayne Rooney started out, he was electrifying. He was special. He was he, he, he took 2004, the Euros, by storm playing for England. And I don't think he ever really recaptured that kind of spark of genius that was in his game earlier on in his career. I think his his fitness, his, his, the way he looked after himself really took a toll on, him, on his body over, over the years. And I think it stopped him from possibly reaching his potential. I think he will go down in history as being more of a Norman Whiteside than a George Best. Um, and I, you know, despite the fact that he did become Manchester United's all-time top goal scorer, I think the era in which he did it in, where goal scorers became much more of a designated role, and you saw that his career progressed in United, that became his role at the club after the, you know, after Ronaldo left. But I think the way that he kind of played the club at times um, for transfers, the way that he you know his media persona and the fact that he wasn't the you know the Gary Lineker's of the world he wasn't a pin-up he wasn't um, a guy that you know people wanted to be a la David Beckham or a la you know Dwight York or something like that looking at all of that you're like is this guy going to be remembered in in an amazing way and I I don't know if he will to be quite honest You, you might have a different opinion than me but I think there's a lot of lost potential in Wayne Rooney and you know, you say he's retired at 35, but in in real terms, he's been gone for several years now. Yeah, like, uh, there's there's really a lot to unpack with Wayne Rooney that we could almost do a whole show on just because he's had such a, a strange career. Um, but, like, you're completely right that at the start of his career, he was electrifying. Like, I was I was quite young when he started out first, and he absolutely, he was amazing to watch for me uh, when, I, when I was very young. And uh, he obviously lost a lot of that as he got older, and even... Even as he kind of came into his prime, he lost a bit of that as well, just because his role in the team changed and and uh, Ronaldo kind of overtook him in mm. in importance in the in the main United team. That he kind of he was moved to the side uh, to kind of bring out the best in Ronaldo, uh, kind of in the way that Karim Benzema was at Real Madrid, and he I think he did do that role excellently. But I think because of that, we never really got to see the true potential of Rooney, as I said, and then. His fitness as well. Like I know there are a lot of reports at the time that he he wasn't maybe keeping the best um best diet or you know he he wasn't looking after himself during the off season and he'd come back a bit overweight sometimes. But there the other issues that he had in his career with fitness was just that he would he would almost push himself too much in the actual games themselves so that he would end up like he he would pick up an injury and then he'd insist that he had to play the next game, which was just a bit reckless really when you think about it. Um, I think the biggest example of that was in 2010 when he's probably having the best season of his career, really. He's certainly his most prolific. Um, he was finally getting the chance to lead the line for Man United. He, he, he was 
he went on a tear of scoring just i think he scored like 10 headers in a row it was really weird like he was really becoming proficient at all all forms of goal scoring because like he had worldies in his pocket as well and uh he had this great ability to drive through a team uh almost by himself through sheer will um but he was adding all kinds of goals to his game that year but he picked up an ankle ligament injury in between the first and second leg and the Champions League quarterfinal against Bayern Munich and they went to Bayern and they actually scored within uh within the first two minutes and it was a Rooney goal of course and it was just oh yeah he pops up again uh, but it was a late goal from Bayern Munich that kind of turned the tie a bit and gave them a bit of a an advantage going to the second leg. Uh, and Rooney forced himself to play uh, that's, that second leg. Uh, he clearly was not uh, fit enough to play the full 90 minutes, but he insisted on playing. He had a great game. Maynard went 3-0 up. Um, then Rafael got sent off. Rooney uh, started to feel the wear of the injury and they, they succumbed to away goals. Um, and he ended up being Are you out then. Yeah, uh, he ended up being affected by that. It affected his World Cup at yes. the end of the season. Yeah. May Knight had won nothing that year. England had a dreadful World Cup. And I don't think, like, he, he did have great uh, moments after that. And he had decent patches where he reminded did you he? how great he was. But, yeah, I think in that Moy season, really, he actually stood out as being the best player in that team. And they could have fallen, I think, a lot further. Um, but for Rooney's form, particularly in the Champions League, like, I think Rooney was mostly the reason why they got out of that group. And they got out of that group comfortably enough. Um, he, he played really well uh, at that stage, but he, he never really recovered his form from that ankle ligament injury. And then the kind of the general tear on his body got to him by the age of 30. And by the time Jose Mourinho was main manager, it was obvious that he, he needed to be shifted out of the team and out of the club. Yeah, so the the main thing I have with Rooney is when you compare him with the people he, he played with and against in, in his prime years, you're looking at the likes of Robert Lewandowski at, a, at his starting point at, at at Dortmund. You're looking at Leo Messi, obviously. You're looking at Cristiano Ronaldo, who was a great teammate for years. Carlos Tevez, even, in a, in, a, in a kind of sideways way. You're looking at uh, Arjen Robin, Wesley Schneider. And of all of those players, you think... Look at their careers, look how they compare to Rooney. And you think, despite the fact that Rooney has the international record for England for goal scoring, he also has the goal scoring record for Manchester United. And he doesn't compare to them in terms of numbers or, or, or trophies won. You know, he has the European Cup more than Zlatan. But he doesn't have most of the other accolades or achievements of, you know, carrying a team in an international tournament, of scoring ridiculous numbers of goals, of continuing and, and having that longevity to carry teams that are, are worse than some of their parts into your 30s and, and in terms of that and coming close to your 40s. Like, th- these are all the things that Rooney is up against. And in in the grander scheme of things, he's probably at the bottom of that pile of players, despite early on shining brighter than all of them, really. Yeah, like, I, I get where you're coming from. And I do think that I think he's maybe a victim of his own early success because yeah. not many players come on at the age of 16 and are as yeah. electrifying as he was. Um, and, and there was a lot of hype around how good he was at that early stage, um, which like, you know, has anyone really come to the fore that young since like maybe Kylian Mbappe, but he was, he was 17 even, um, but he, he, he's the closest since that we've seen like that. And Fabregas as well. Fabregas the same time. another it, one. Yeah. Uh, Michael Owen, I think before that as well. And, uh, uh, like the, the, those three players all have one thing in common as well. And, um, you know, hopefully this doesn't happen to Kylian Mbappe now is that they all kind of, they, they started off very well, but then they burned very brightly at a, at a young age. Um, like Owen was finished, yeah. faded. Yeah. That's what I meant to say. Um, but they all at a young age kind of stopped 
uh, playing at a, at a younger point than you would expect. Like Fabregas is still playing, but you know he was finished by the time Mourinho got sacked to Chelsea the second time. Owen was done basically by the time he was even at Real Madrid. Rooney was finished uh, at the age of thirty, really. Like you know, you compare as you say to the likes of Lewandowski and Ronaldo and Zlatan, who are coming closer and closer to the age of forty now, and they're still kind of lighting it up. You know, uh, at the highest level. Zlat- yeah. Yeah, like Lewandowski's uh, probably could have won the Ballon d'Or uh, for twenty twenty if that didn't get cancelled. Zlatan's playing in, at the team at the top of Serie A, whereas Wayne Rooney's retiring in, uh, from a championship level club, and he is going to manage that club now, which which could be interesting. Yeah, you know that's the next step in his career. That's what he's done. This, you know, similar to what John Terry did when he became the assistant manager at Aston Villa, similar to. You know, even Frank Lampard kind of did, and Steven Gerrard when they ended their playing careers to go into management immediately, and and Arteta obviously in Man City as well did something similar. And you know, each of those players, turned managers, have had varying successes, and and you know, the jury's out on some of them. And I think the jury's still out on on Derby County at Wayne Rooney because they haven't, you know, they haven't done that well. And the the club, it is a basket case of a club, no doubt, and they fluctuate every season and somehow still have money at the end of it. Um, but I don't know if he's taken on much from Philip Kaku before. And uh, then in, in other kind of uh, legacy news, Mesut Ozil uh, is leaving Arsenal or set to leave Arsenal this week after being at the club for seven and a half years. Was the deal worth it for both parties in the end? I, I, it's very hard. When you're talking about astronomical amounts of money per week, what was it? I think people said 400, but it was closer to 350 what he was actually getting paid in a gross level. Uh, per week but that's still an obscene amount of money to get paid and the guy hasn't played or been in a squad I think since March I want to say um, which is a crazy long time to still be getting paid full full money because he's not injured there's no insurance that they can, they can claim for it so they just didn't play him for nine months because of personal reasons and that kind of has to be looked at in the club and what they did but I think it's um, it's an illustration of Arsenal at their best and worst over the last decade Ozil was, was brought to Arsenal it was a coup for them at the time and it was seen as them entering back into the big time it was a great coup for the then manager Arsene Wenger because it was him that really you know coaxed Ozil into coming to Arsenal he, he, he showed him the project and you know his success at, at getting things out of out of players like Ozil and it worked for a time you know Arsenal were relatively successful for the you know the, the monetary outlay on the club they, they were in Champions League every season they would get spanked every season but they were there and you know they they get to achieve a, a high of second place at one stage of of Ozil's um, of Ozil's uh, player playing time at the at the club. But overall, you're lo- you're looking at the success of that transfer. Was it a success? And the answer is no. They won a few FA Cups with him. No league titles. No European silverware. The, you know what what is deemed a success? He was actually pulled off in the only European final in in the Europa League against Chelsea, and and in in some form of disgrace at the time two years ago and and that's kind of the the sour taste that's been left in everyone's mouth since then uh around Mesut Ozil he was he is a fantastic player he has the ability to pick a pass like few others in in, in global football and the the ability to stroke those passes in an amazing way he invented a new way of taking a shot into the ground for some bizarre reason but will his memory live long beyond this time similar to the Rooney conversation below I don't think so I think it'll be much much more of a maybe a a George Wah at Chelsea or a, maybe that's a bit harsh. Maybe Jose Antonio Reyes at Arsenal, a player that was of a supreme talent, but it just didn't work out in the longer term. And 
unfortunately for Arsenal, it's cost them an enormous amount of money to uh, rid themselves of him. And um, yeah, good luck to Mesut Ozil and Fenerbahce, I suppose. Yeah, like the initial deal, I think, was completely worth it, really. Like when, when he arrived in the club first, it was kind of a bombshell. Like, oh my God, Arsenal are actually bringing in someone of star power potential and uh, are actually spending some money on a player because it was at that period where Arsenal were still kind of repaying the debt of the Emirates and, you know, every year they'd be hyped up as, oh, Arsene Wenger is a 200 million war chest or whatever and they'd, they'd end up not really doing anything with it but then they actually signed Ozil and it was this big, like, watershed moment for Arsenal that they actually were there and, and were able to pay for the big-name players. Like, they signed... Someone from Real Madrid, albeit, you know, Real Madrid were finished with him, but it was still, you know, he was playing for Germany in the World Cup. He was a great player for Real Madrid. It wasn't that he was necessarily passed at Real Madrid or anything. It was just that they, he was superfluous to requirements there. Like they, because of the model that Real Madrid have, they, they are constantly needing to bring in new faces. And it was just Mesut Ozil's turn to be cast aside. And it was Di Maria's the year later. And, you know, that was the cycle they were in. Yeah. Um, but Arsenal took advantage of that and, and he was really exciting at first. Like he I remember like Arsenal fans were just gushing over everything he did. Like he could do something very basic really and it would get get a lot of Arsenal fans excited. That was kind of how big of a statement signing it was. And then a year later they bring in Alexis Sanchez and you really think, Okay, Arsenal are kicking on now and then I think really where it all starts to go wrong for Arsenal, um, and probably where it all starts going on for Ozil then is the year they just bring in Petr Cech uh, and that really kind of highlights a, a lack of ambition at the club that they they could have done with an improvement to the team like the, it, 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 it was at that stage where Wenger was like almost there with building a next championship winning team and they just needed one or two more players of a similar level um, maybe a defensive midfielder maybe a striker they were linked with Karen Benzema a lot that summer I remember Yeah, uh, and all they did was all, yeah, and Higuain, and all they did was bring in Petr Cech, who was who was very much cast aside at Chelsea as being past it. Yeah, um, still playing for them. Still playing for them. Yeah, it ended up with them actually coming second in the league that year. That was the year Leicester would go on to win the league, and I suppose that really highlighted how much of a missed opportunity it was. If Arsenal had been a bit more ruthless in the market, they maybe could have won the league that year. I think that was the season. Also, got eighteen or nineteen league assists as well. Most of those came in the first half of the season like that was probably his best year at the club Sanchez had a great year got I think 45 goals in all competitions or 30 goals 15 assists or something like that um, mm. so like they they were almost there like they they were second in the league and everything but after that it all kind of fell apart the the other big teams kind of realised how fall, how far they'd fallen and, and kind of you know that was the year that Man City brought in Pep Liverpool brought in Klopp Mourinho was at Man United and Pochettino was coming into his peak at, at, at Tottenham as well and Arsenal ended up kind of fading after that and I suppose they've been on a downward spiral ever since then yeah and and nothing necessarily Ozil could have done about the, the downward spiral the club was into but yeah you're right that, that was probably the beginning of the end for him at the club but yeah that was how many years ago now and how much money that has cost at this point is it, crazy you're right the, the initial 40 million given how the market has gone in the last seven years is is, is a bargain really for a player of that stature um and the and they obviously the return they got on that in the in the time in the, at least the first contract the first four seasons of, of his contract was probably worth it a couple of fa cups that second place finish those assists that that's all great but then yeah the second the the, the mistake that was made in the second half of the contract and it's kind of 
the problem that's followed Arsenal is just making poor short-term decisions or making decisions for the short-term need and not for the long-term strategy. And, you know, they're, they're continuing to pay for it to this day. And I think it's only now that that, that club is fixing itself. And Ozil is one of the last bastions of that older era. And then to the actual Premier League action this week, Chelsea got back to winning ways to be Fulham 1-0. But uh, it was hardly convincing, was it? No, it was terrible, to be honest. Like, like Fulham sat back entirely because they only had, you know, 10 men. And there's, you know, refereeing decisions that were made in that game, which were a bit suspect, not necessarily the red card itself. But there were some odd decisions made in that game to do with bookings and things like that. And you were looking at the referees like, are you trying to square this up? Are you trying to make it less even? Or are you going for the big club? It doesn't seem, he seemed very overwhelmed by the star power of, of people shouting at him from the sideline. That's all I'll say. But yeah, they, they were very unimpressive. And I think Fulham on a day when they had 11 players, on a day when they took their chances, I think really could have caused um, Chelsea a lot of problems. I remember this is a Fulham side that played only a few days earlier. Like they were definitely in, in you know, in it. And, and played a big game too. Like they yeah. played against Tottenham. Who Another are, derby. Above you know. Chelsea in the table. Yeah. Uh, like I, I, I tend to agree with you that Chelsea, I think were pretty poor. The goal was, the goal just kind of seemed to happen as well. Areola kind of flapped at the ball really weirdly and Mount just kind of popped up. And Yeah, uh, it was unfortunate for Areola because yeah. he's having such a good season for the most part. He's making, like he's keeping Fulham in a lot of the matches that they played in. I know people have said, oh, Fulham have turned a corner since a few months ago, but they really haven't. And Areola is one of the few players they have that's that's really put in a shift. I, I'd be by far my, my pick for player of their season so far. And, you know, he flapped at it is one way, like he kind of made a poor decision and... The real issue, I think, was the lack that there's no follow-up support in the Fulham defence. Now, that could be excused because they were tired. It had already been... It was nearly 80 minutes, I think, when that goal went in, wasn't it? And uh, It was about 70 minutes, I think. Oh, it was yeah. only 70 minutes. So, you know, it had been a long match already, even... I know the red card wasn't that previous long before that, but, you know, they, they, they were looking tired already and, and really Chelsea were throwing everything at them. And even then, though, afterwards, you know, Fulham had started creating more chances and got more control of the ball and really it was a kind of damnation on Chelsea that they couldn't really control the match out for the rest of it and there were chances before it was over but yeah Chelsea you know back to winning ways I suppose and slowly trying to climb back up that table I think there's there's coming a point where there's going to be do or die for for Frank Lampard the next few weeks if he goes into another run and I'm not even saying a four match run but if he gets to a two or three match run without a victory or two matches defeats, I think his job is being questioned again. And I don't know if he'll climb out of it because he's kind of played all of his cards at this point. He's thrown the team under the bus. He's gone back to type. He has gone back to the experienced players and thrown the younger players under the bus. I don't know who else or what else he can do if something goes wrong again. Yeah, like, uh, you know, when the game was still 11 on 11, I think Fulham were really growing into the game and the right card was maybe the worst timing they could have possibly asked for. It was right before halftime. They just had a couple of good chances. Cavalero, I think it was, had an unbelievable chance that he just put over the bar and I was like, how did he manage to put it that far over the bar? Whenever you heard Caballero, whenever you heard Caballero or whatever, however you pronounce his name, did you also think that the old Chelsea goalkeeper was playing outfield? And... <laughs> Uh, maybe a couple of times but yeah. I think every I, time I think every seen, time I was like oh Willie Caviero came on in midfield for Fulham I have seen enough uh, enough Fulham games to just get used to it at this point but uh, it was Chelsea yeah, playing like, Chelsea 
true, true. But uh, I think, you know, Fulham were really growing into the game. Like, I think they have turned a corner under Parker and with the new signings, mostly just in the sense that those first few games of the season, they were utterly dreadful. Like, they were... As if they didn't think they were in the Premier League anymore. That they were still in the Championship. Yeah, and I think that they've really adapted to that and the new signings have come in and they have made a bit of a difference. But the red card and... I think there was a yellow card as well for um, I can't remember the name of the the other fullback, but the two of them will now miss the next few games. Luckman, or, was it? No, no, Luckman's their forward. I can't remember the name of the um, the guy that scored against Liverpool. I just can't remember his name at all right now. But he's out of their next game yeah. as well. Uh, Di Cordova Reed, I think his name is, or something like that. Uh, he, he's been quite good as well. Yeah, like the two yeah. of them. He was the outball. Two for of them, them I think. Yeah, I think the two of them were quite good in that game up until the fact that one of them got sent off, another one got a yellow, which will put them out of their next game. Um, so tough run coming up for them. I think they play Man United next, which as a series of games, to play Tottenham, Chelsea, and, and Man United is pretty rough. It's rough, um, yeah. Although it wasn't of uh, their making, they were rearranged fixtures true. in that. So, uh, so you know, I have a bit of sympathy for them there. Chelsea, I think you're right. Like Lampard, I think if they lost this, Lampard yeah, might have got been in sacked. Trouble. Yeah. Um, just because the performance itself was just so bad like they never really looked like scoring I don't mount at the bar as well at one point but they weren't really troubling Ariola too much I know he did make a couple of good saves but it, it just they were never convincing against no. the side they're in the relegation zone like that's just not a good yeah, look yeah it didn't you did, it um, didn't look like two teams from different ends of the table it looked like two poor mid-table teams with a lot of old players mixed in with a bit of youth playing and that's kind of what it was uh, and the fact as well, uh, the starting 11 that Lampard chose, I saw described as the leader's 11. Uh, you know, the players in the dressing room who tend to stand up, which I just think was a damning indictment of the way Lampard kind of manages this team, that it's built on character and mentality and not built on, you know, anything tactical or, or interesting or based no. on the actual game of football or how to score goals or how to not concede or how to concede, yeah, how to not concede goals. Like, it, it, was, yeah. it was all built, built on character, which... I suppose really just show that he's a disciple of Mourinho after all. Like, oh yeah, absolutely, and and I know this is something we'll probably touch on in a bit later on. But the the lack of a attacking coordinated plan, you know, that you don't always need them, and there's teams that function perfectly well without them entirely, and have been hugely successful without them. But when you're breaking down a ten man team and just throwing more strikers on the field and hoping something will happen, even though you know someone has to pass the balls to the striker, um, that that felt like a lot of Chelsea. That's why I thought the goal was very late in the match because it felt so late in the match it felt like Chelsea were just hitting their head against the wall hoping that something would change and fortunately for them Ariola made that bit of a, a weird decision and Fulham defenders weren't there to react and Mason Mount got his goal uh, but Man City were convincing in their 4-0 win over Crystal Palace they moved into the top four now and I think most people kind of have them down as their favourites for the league title now given their form uh, what do you think of that? Like I read an interesting piece from Jonathan Wilson last week that, that did make a good argument for why City have moved into that favourites position I still don't think they're the best team in, in England and the Premier League for the, for that matter I still don't think they're going to win the title because Liverpool have been there done that they have the experience and they have a lot of good quality team players to come back and, and you know contribute to uh, their season and a lot of stuff will happen between now and the end of the season but you know Jonathan Wilson made a very good point that Pep has adjusted and this is stuff we said earlier in the season we were criticising Pep and I know you were at it probably more so than I was but saying that like oh he's you know he's using this season to learn and he's using this season to adjust and transition and and you know any anything that comes from it is a bonus 
that said, I, I I think that he has adjusted the way they've played in the middle of the season and moved more away from the the high tempo pressing football we've seen the last three years to a much more controlled, slow game, more deep lying, which benefits some of the players that were kind of out of favour previously. And, you know, given that they're they've got limitations in attack due to injuries, it's it's really lit up the Premier League, I suppose, in, in the way that it's given variation to goal scorers because he's bringing, rather than bringing two or three players into an attack that could score in a counter-attacking game, he's now bringing six or seven players into that attack in a slower process and really working out a, a way to score a goal. Now, this will backfire any place that likes the Tottenham <laughs> because I think they'll they'll set up perfectly against this system. But for now, if, if someone gives them any space, if the likes of Crystal Palace come up against them, they'll, they'll wipe the floor with them. Yeah, it's it's been a kind of a fortuitous run. I know they beat Chelsea in that run, but we were just talking about yeah. how poor Chelsea have been lately. But they, you know, the likes of Palace, the likes of Brighton, you know, they're teams that kind of favour um, the matchup against City. And I think, you know, obviously I was critical of Pep not too long ago, but uh, he, it, it's been interesting. Like they've gone on a quite a good run. They do look convincing in those wins, but it kind of, there's something about it that reminds me of his first run at City in that very first season. The 30 matches they, or the 30 points. Uh, was it 10 wins I, in a I row think, or something? Yeah, I think they won 10 games in a row, yeah. yeah. And, and everyone was like, oh my God, Pep's done it immediately. He's, he's just dominated England and they're going to run away with the league title. And instead, they lost to, I think it was Tottenham um, went on uh, in Tottenham. And, and, yeah. and they ended up just going, yeah, on a terrible run. They ended up having some pretty humiliating defeats and they finished, I think, third that year. But well off... Uh, that Chelsea team that ended up winning the league under Conte uh, and I'm not saying that they're going to end up uh, going on a terrible run again soon but they do kind of remind me in the sense that you know I do think just one defeat could send them backwards again and it yeah. could end up with Pep tinkering with things a bit more and and right now things are working but you know given the fixture congestion that's coming their way I think it's a bit too early to say that they'll yeah. definitely win it like obviously you know favourites is, is a bit different to saying they'll definitely win it it is mm-hmm. very tight it's very hard to decide who's going to win it because like even at the moment Liverpool don't look like they can win the title but things can change very quickly as we're seeing with City themselves so yeah it, it's definitely added an extra layer of intrigue to the table because you know if they were to play their two games in hand right now and win both of them they'd be top of the league um so, you know, yeah. there there is that factor to it as well. But, uh, yeah, just because it shows there's a long way to go. Oh, there is, yeah. Man, Man City looks so down and out of it just a month ago. Yeah. And now suddenly they're they're back at the top nearly and they, they're most people's favourites. Like, it just goes to show there's a lot of twists and turns ahead yeah. of us yet. Absolutely. If you told us that eight or nine matches played, that City would be closing in on top of the table and be the majority of journalists and experts' favourites, we would laugh at chance, say not a, not a chance in hell. But this season is so topsy turvy. Like Manchester United are top at the moment, which is, which is crazy. But considering where they were at the beginning of the season, losing consecutive matches. But then, look at them now. And Liverpool, uh, five weeks ago, if we said Liverpool were struggling after having, I think they pulled eight or nine points clear of, of Man City at the time. I know they weren't, you know, one first and second, but there was some gap to, like that in, in play. And now that they're even, if not, you know, City have the have the potential advantage to take over from them. You know that's that's crazy when you when you think about it, um, yeah. And there, I I I fully believe that you know Liverpool are going through a downtime at the moment. Manchester United have gone through downtimes this season. There's another one coming, I'm sure. There's another one coming for City, who've had them as well. Spurs have just got through one and they're out the other end. Chelsea have just been through one and 
time will tell whether they're out the other end. You know, Leicester City have lost a few important matches during this run as well and, and have come back again. This season is completely open. It's not going to be like any we've seen in the last 10 years, we'd say. It is going to be tight. It is going to be similar to seasons we saw in the mid-90s where, you know, what, what was the... Six, between 68 and 78 points was the league-winning uh, points total. I think that's where we're going this season. And Tottenham won 3-1 against the bottom of the tail of Sheffield United. But the highlight of this game was most certainly the third goal from Tango and Domele. What, what did you make of that one? You're playing... You see, with... with, with Tango Dumbley, I think he's I think he's better than he's shown at Tottenham. I think that's why they spent the big bucks on him. He is very much a streaky player. I think everyone's agreed to that. Even last season when he came back and, and performed better, he he entered into poor form again and, and was just nowhere in matches. I think this season already we've seen two ups and two down periods, or at least one down period of his of his form this season, and I think he's back into it now. With this game and with that goal specifically, I felt that the game was beyond Sheffield United and they kind of felt that. And there was something, you know, very much, oh, he's going to do this now and he's going to score. And I think there was a, how would you say, I think there was inevitability in the, in the in Sheffield United players about it. And I, you know, I think it kind of probably, probably flattered in Domblay a bit. But at the same time, you know, you have to be in. You what's what's the saying go? You have to buy a ticket to win the lottery, and I think he he definitely did that. Yeah, it was just a, a nice bit of invention, I think. From him. it was a nice little finisher. I think people were comparing it to a Robbie Keane all that I can't quite remember, but sounds right. <laughs> um, oh yeah, Robbie Keane. Uh, which is a fun comparison between Robbie Keane and and, and Ndombele. That, that that would be fun. I'd love to see Ndombele in this Irish side. Um, but you, you don't yeah, remember like, Robbie Keane at his best? He was electrifying. Uh, but um, yeah, like Ndombele, I think has been pretty good at times this season, and I think when very much like uh, past Mourinho teams, like when when their best players on form, they're on it, and I think when he's on it. Tottenham are at their absolute best. Um, you know, we've been critical of them at times this year, uh, basically since Mourinho's taken over. But yeah. when, when they do perform, it's usually because Tanya and Dombele has kind of bossed the show. Like obviously, they have Kane and Son who are Kane scoring Son, a load of goals. Yeah. Um, but I think Ndombele is kind of what makes this team tick that bit more and kind of elevates them into being a good team. Uh, yeah. And if you can keep performing like that, I think, um, you know, they, they'll be in that top four. I don't think they're good enough to be in a title contention at all. Um, even no. if Ndombele keeps his form. Uh, but he's so much fun to watch that, uh, you know, you kind of hope that he does keep up this form. Like, he is he is quite fun to watch. C- can I speak very quickly about Spurs and about Mourinho? Yeah, go ahead. So I, f- I feel that Mourinho creates, um, and everyone knows this, everyone said it, he creates an us-against-the-world kind of mentality in a club. But he also, with that, he creates a bond between the players he has. And that bond becomes symbiotic almost, that... You play well, I play well, we all play well, and and it it generally creates a team that is better than the sum of its parts. You know that's why you always find these workhorses in Mourinho teams, along with some like fantastic players. Look at his interside, side, you know Melito along with Wesley Snyder. You know they they're they're not really the same type of player, but they were they function in that team fantastically well. Matarazzi along with. Uh, who was in goals for for Inter in that Champions League again with Julio Cesar? Uh, you know. Really- yeah, Julio Cesar. Julio Cesar. You know, the, these are, um, you know, not not fantastic players, but in a Mourinho side, they're, they're blood brother, brothers. And I feel that he, he is, in a way that he didn't manage to do at Manchester United, I, I felt the close he came to it was, you know, the likes of Scott McTominay and 
bringing bringing through that kind of young crop that like would live live with each other and die with each other that kind of way. I don't think he really achieved it in Manchester United, but I think at Spurs he has. He has Song, he has Kane, he has uh, what's the name of your man from Southampton that uh, is very angry all the time. Uh, midfield Hoiberg you know Hoiberg I think is a, a really good defensive midfielder I think he would be useless if you put him in a Man City side I think he'd be useless if you put him in a probably an Everton side but if you put him in that Manchester or in that Spurs midfield alongside Ndombele with Sissoko coming off the bench with you know whoever else like Lamella or La Celso or whoever is in the, the team that week you create a, a, a balanced side of guys that will do anything to help each other and I think that's why, with Eric Dyer behind them, with the fullbacks working hard on either side, I think that's why you get this kind of never-say-die attitude and you get these great performances at them. At the same time, they could be undone by just being not good enough, and we've seen that plenty of times this season as well. And if the going gets tough, Mourinho runs away, which is also a, a negative style of his managerial side. But when things go well and your players are playing well and for each other, his, his method of management is almost unbeatable. And that's what Spurs were at the weekend. Now they were playing a Sheffield United side that is pretty down in the dumps, despite getting their first win of the, of the season recently. But you know, anyone against that side would have struggled. I think at the weekend. And then finally, the news: Inter Milan were two 0 victors over their bitter rivals Juventus on Sunday night. They're second in the table, level on points in Milan. Um, you know, is this the year Inter finally win a league title? Two words for you: Arturo Vidal. A player deemed <laughs> useless at Barcelona last season, and rightfully so for anyone who watched it. Um, Create headlines by kissing Juventus badge before the match. I That was either a bet, I think. He said he did it for his brother, Giorgio Chiellini. I don't know whether Chiellini just, you know, he was just kissing Chiellini on, on the chest for, the, for just for love, or whether it was something to do with the badge. <laughs> who knows? But he goes and he scores in that match, and then um, they go on to win it. I, I think it's a damnation in Italian football that Inter are where they are considering how potentially inconsistent they are how slow they are how it's possible for Arturo de Vidal to start and end an attacking move by moving about 10 yards because that's what he did to score that goal remember he, he spread the ball out wide moved about 10 yards into the box and headed it in was it a header he got in the end you know that, that that's a damnation on on what's going on in Italian football at the moment. That there's a lack of quality there. That the game is extremely slow, in the way that you know we talked about the Premier League slowing down immensely because of the lockdown football and whatever effect it's had. There's been less pressing in Italy. It's gone to a different level altogether, and teams are basically just waiting and waiting. And you know you'll have an attacking side and then a defensive side for large periods of the match, which results in these amazing long range goals as we saw yesterday as well in that inter match where it was Juventus camped out and then just a long ball over the top, completely spread the match open and, and allowed Inter to, to really kill the game after about 60 minutes. Um, and that's, I think, I think it's a damnation on, on Italian football. That said, I don't know if that means that Inter aren't going to win the league this year. They they probably have the most accomplished manager in, in Italian football at the moment in, in Conte. They have a quite a good squad who have a lot of experience, Arturo Vidal being one of the, the aforementioned, but you know, even even the likes of Lukaku up front has a lot of experience at this point in his career. Alexis Sanchez, <clears throat> even Martinez isn't that you know he's not that young. He's been around a while, so they 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 should have enough uh, enough you know kind of experience in the tank to get them over the line. But then there's always you know Juve just win every year, no matter what, no matter what team comes up against them. And, 
and you you can't you know the Milan game kind of showed it Milan threw everything at them and, and Juventus got the win it's a long way left in that Italian season yet and you know even though Inter are a fair bit back or Juventus rather are a fair bit back I still can't count them out yeah, they, they currently sit in fifth or seven points behind Milan, who they've played the same amount of game, games as a seven behind Inter Milan, who they've played one game fewer than. And uh, like this, I think if, if you know, you were to just say the take away everything about Juventus and strip away that context of who they are, this is the kind of game and performance that would end their title hopes. Like they, they were terrible in this game. I think this is probably Inter's best performance of the season. You know, they've had a lot of games where they kind of stupidly go behind and have to come back and, and win the hard way. Like, they generally do it the hard way. But this was the most comfortable they've been all year. This is their first um, first victory over Juve for a few years now as well. I think 2016 was their last victory over Juve. Um, and it was a commanding win. That that second goal, I think, was really well taken by Barea. Yep. Um, you know, it was a great strike. It was a great pass uh, in the build-up. It completely cut out the whole Juventus midfield, cut right through it and uh, brought Borea uh, right through on goal. It was a great finish. Um, but Juve just, you know, didn't create anything. They never looked like scoring, which against this Inter team is almost an achievement in itself considering... With Ronaldo they, on the side, yeah. Yeah, with Ronaldo who had a terrible game as well. Um, but like Inter looks susceptible to a goal every game they play. Like they just can't hold on to a clean sheet. But in this game, it, it never looked in doubt. Um, this this really was like this. Uh, I don't want to be too critical of Pirlo because he's just turning out in his career. But he is Juventus manager, so we have to lay into him yeah. for the kind of match that this is. Like he just got completely outcoached by Conte. Like, you could really see the gulf in quality between the two of them. And uh, you know how long until Juve kind of go crawling back to Conte? I wonder. Um, you know, yeah. we've seen how discontent Conte has been in Inter. Like I think you'll see out the season he could win the league this year. Uh, but his time in a club is never going to last too long. No. So, he, you know, he, he burns the bridges. Back yeah. Um, but, uh, sooner than we think. But yeah, I, I, I think uh, you're right, though, that it is still early in the season. There is still the context that this is Juventus. They still have Paolo Dybala. They still have Cristiano Ronaldo. Yeah. Great players. Uh, so you can never count them out. But, you know, of the nine or ten years now that they've been winning the league this is this is as vulnerable as they've looked like even against Maurizio Sarri's great Napoli side they were still competing with them week in week they were trading wins they were they were very close all season there was very rarely a time where Juve were sat in fifth mid-table not really looking good like there's that one season where they started poorly but after that they went on a tear um, after those first five or six games and they kept losing um, so uh, you know this this is a different Juve side to what we've seen. There's a di- that aura around them seems to just be slowly fading, and uh, you know if if they were to lose the league title, uh, this this surely looks the year for it. Yeah, no, <clears throat> you're making a lot of good points on it, and it does make me sad that like I hope Pirlo isn't discouraged from football management after this season. Like I don't see him lasting much more than this season. I'm sure he's learning a lot as he goes along, but being like having having your kind of learning on the job role be at Juventus can't be easy, especially when you're being compared constantly to really successful managers, predecessors like Conte, who you're having to manage against. I think really Pirlo should hope, hopefully will seek out a a smaller job to learn before he comes back to the big time again. I'm just even thinking about how well other former great players like Gattuso, the 6-0 against against Fiorentina, his uh, Napoli side won over the weekend. You know, they're, 
you know, he might have been considered done when he when he left Milan, but look at him now, he's he's making the climb back up. Both Inzaghi brothers showing that you don't have to well, like Pippo especially leaving Milan and going back down the table and, and really working working on his craft. I think I think Pirlo can look to them and, and maybe hope for a better future. But yeah, for now it's unless the whole psychological thing happens, Juventus just win the league through sheer, you know, will. Um, yeah, it is, isn't looking great for them um, at the club, the old lady. Passes his chances. Oh, brilliant goal! A brilliant goal! Remember the name, Wayne Rooney! May United retain their position at the top of the table following their nil-all draw at Anfield. Liverpool slipped down to fourth behind Leicester and Manchester City. The reaction to the game was mostly negative with a lot of people finding it to be a boring, drab affair. But Andrew, what did you make of it and what does this match mean for the league going forward? I really think it, didn't think it was that bad. I thought it was much better than the City-United match, better than the Chelsea-City match, better than the Chelsea-United match. You know, It was better than all of those games. Um, I think there were chances on both ends. I think like Liverpool were lacking in very key areas, which, you know, having to play Shakiri as a central midfielder, having... Um, whatchamacallum, uh, I've complete Thiago Alcantara as your, you know, defensive linchpin is, is a funny world yet you have to live in. You know, he was going in making sliding tackles all over the place. You know, it's an unusual thing to watch, but at the same time, I think it was entertaining. There was chances on both sides. Both teams really could have taken the lead and at different times in the match I think Liverpool had the best of the first half I think if it wasn't for poor finishing from Roberto Firmino who as Jimmy Carragher said on multiple occasions in the Sky commentary he is really not a good finisher he's not a good striker of the ball at all and he never really has been he always kind of scuffs shots and doesn't you know he doesn't seem to have the leg mass behind him to really hit a powerful shot through through a keeper um, if it was anybody else on the field, if Diego Jota was playing or anyone like that, I, or Salah or Mane had managed to get into the positions that Firmino had, I think there would have been a lot different result yesterday. On the flip side of that, Manchester United grew into the game. I think Liverpool's tiredness, despite having played less football in, in the last couple of weeks, really showed up in the second half. I don't I don't think they could have maintained the tempo they had in, in the first half, and I think that really dragged their game down as the, as the game wore on I think United resting on the on their possession in the first half and resting on their, their own sitting in their own territory really helped them as the game progressed and the counter-attacks were there and really if it wasn't for Allison and a couple of times where maybe Pogba could have taken a better sh- choice of a shot or a few other players could have really done something else in the box I I, I think United could have scored as well um I, overall, I think it was an even match. I think it was quite entertaining. I, I don't think there was anything magically tactically done in the game. I think he played attack versus defence in the first half, and I think he played counter-attack and football in the second half. And I think, you know, what more can you ask for in a modern Premier League match at the top of the table? Yeah, like, uh, you're completely spot on that they, they were much better games than the ones you mentioned. There was chances. The Chelsea, t- <laughs> the Chelsea, Chelsea Tottenham game as well was another absolutely oh, yeah, horrible, horrible game. Uh, just a lot of really bad games for the the team the games between the top teams um Bayern Arsenal was another one even though that did have a goal in it um yeah, but yeah good. I I generally agree that I think this game was solid enough like there was there's enough riding on the line and there was enough tension in the game that kind of the the fact that there weren't any goals was okay like you know there were chances as you said like hmm. Allison made two two quite smart saves on on Fernandez and Pogba that uh, you know, lesser keepers wouldn't have maybe saved. No. Um, that kept 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 them uh, at nil all. Uh, I was kind of surprised ahead didn't really have to make any spectacular saves as we're kind of used to in these big games, which I suppose is 
progress in a way for for Man United, even though you know he did have a couple of shots that were right at him from Firmino. Firmino um, just had a terrible game. That's why. <laughs> yeah, like I think if you said to Solskjaer before the game, like Liverpool have a couple of chances, but they fall to Roberto Firmino, yeah. he'd have been like, "Yeah, sound, <laughs> good job. Yeah. Uh, I'll take that." Because um, you know, if if it had been Salah or or Mane in those positions, maybe. Deja would have had to have done a bit more but uh, like you know it has to be said as well like I think the two defences played quite well in this game like sometimes that happens like the two teams just have a pretty good defensive performance and the attack isn't quite there so it's going to lead to a nil like there's another world out there where I think this game finishes 1-1 and everyone comes out of it pretty happy um, like my, I think in terms of the result my United will be happier because like you know they've gone Keeps to Anfield they've avoided yeah. defeat um, it keeps them top, yeah. Um, so you know it's hard to really be too disappointed for for Man United there. I know disappointed was actually the word Solskjaer used in his post match. Uh, <laughs> he, he wasn't uh, disappointed he, in the slightest. You could see him but, uh, like l- laughing with Allison after the match. You know, looking around. Do he did a couple of puffs of the cheeks? I saw when he was coming off the field, like whew. like he was happy out not getting beaten that day, considering how you know the negative results have gone this season at Old Trafford. But, and I think this is something we touched on in, in the last couple of weeks, but I think this was a, another example of Solskjaer doing quite well in his in his uh, media presentation. Like, you know, he, he came out after the game and bigged, and bigged up the team, said they played well, but was disappointed with the result. And uh, even though it was a good result, like it just, it builds expectation. Yeah. Like, okay, they, they're no longer a side that's happy to just finish nil all, even though, you know... Ecstatic in, in, to finish nil all, <laughs> Even though they probably are quite happy to get a nil all, because I think yeah. most teams would be happy with that result. Well, the way he uh, set up from minute one, he was looking for a nil all. Like they were everyone behind the ball, play some long balls through, and someone to run onto them. They weren't looking to like command the match by any stretch of the imagination and take it to Liverpool. But I think the, I think overall the game plan was pretty solid. Like yeah. they they did ride their luck a bit. The chances did fall to Firmino. Um, or you know, chances were a bit scuffed, but then they grew into the game in a way that I thought was quite intelligent. Um, you know, if they'd maybe tried to push a bit more, uh, ten minutes earlier, if maybe the Cavani sub came five minutes earlier, maybe things would have broken through and they could have got that goal. Because uh, I think when Cavani came on, they they definitely they grew into the aim that bit more and they yeah. looked that more threatening. Um, Rashford had that great run where he could have slid it into Cavani, but Fabinho ended up kind of shepherding him. Uh, out of the touchdown I think Fabinho actually had a great game uh, there's a lot of plaudits I think for Thiago uh, but I think Fabinho was much better um, you know he, he, he was kind of the thing that held Liverpool together like Thiago Thiago I think actually had quite an interesting performance first of all it was a bit strange this was his first game in Anfield for Liverpool yeah uh, which doesn't feel right like he's been there a while now um, he was just he just missed a lot injured. of football yeah because yeah. of that uh, Merseyside derby um, but like a lot of people were making a big deal about Thiago's passing, and obviously he's a great passer, yeah. ball, but he didn't really do anything that spectacular. He's, he he did a, a slide and tackle. He did a few slide and tackles for a little. But yeah, that's the that's that's the part of the game that I think actually went under the radar. Is he his positioning was fantastic. He was getting stuck in in a, in a really um, effective way. He, he's, he was lucky not to get a yellow card, though, which I thought was funny. Um, he, he definitely had a two or three challenges that were worthy of a yellow, and I don't think he got one at all. Because um, he's only a little fella. Look at him. Look at him trying. Yeah, that kind of Kante uh, complex well, as well. Kante gets away with a lot. I don't think, well, yeah, I, they're, I don't think there's the same ballpark and physical, um, you know, there's no cast of steel on uh, little Thiago Alcantara. 
But uh, he made a few key interceptions as well in the first half. Like when Maynard were looking to break, which was what their main game plan was, is to look to catch them on the counter. Like Thiago made a few really good, really intelligent interceptions that just completely cut the game out for Man United early on uh, and allowed them to dominate the possession. And in the first half, he did kind of run the show uh, because everything Liverpool did ran through him. But he did also just have a few sloppy passes that were kind of uncharacteristic of him. Like there was a few that just, it was like, what was he thinking? Did he think there was a player there? No one was there, Like which was just a bit uncharacteristic. Um, Don't want to be too harsh on him, but yeah, that was a bit strange. I think there was a lot of onus put on Thiago and I think he might have early on in the match I think his passing got more I'd say his percentages in the second half are higher than the first half where there was a lot of onus on him to make attacking motions in terms of his passing so he was playing balls out to the wings towards the fullbacks who weren't even there at that time which makes me think it's either he's not on their same wavelength or he was trying to force it a bit too much given the the lack of space that was in front of him you know the Man United team set up right in front of him entirely and it's very hard to find space in that in that uh, when you have a lot of the ball which they did um, so I, I, I can give him that. The other, I think Shakiri in midfield as well was an interesting one that didn't, I don't think it went wrong for them to be honest. I think he would fine. Like not, not that the world was in on fire by Shakiri playing as a central midfielder, but I think it's, it's a role he was able to do and he did it quite comfortably. Yeah, like it was a very surprising inclusion. I wasn't expecting Shakiri to, to start the game at all. I was barely even expecting him to come off the bench uh, just because he's not featured at all. But uh, yeah, he didn't really put any any foot wrong he didn't do anything he didn't do anything spectacular or no. terrible which was kind of you know he took the you, ball forward he did his job you know he carried he ran with the ball and he, he 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 connected play that was kind of his job in the game and he did it I think all of this talk about the, the spine of Liverpool I think I know you're saying Fabinho did well but I think that they are definitely lacking that central defensive uh, mindset because I think Jordan Henderson as a centre defender doesn't, at least at this stage in his career, he doesn't have the positioning, he doesn't have the speed and he doesn't have the the timing almost to, to succeed in that position. I think United got in a few times, especially when Cavani came on because there's no doubt, no doubt that Cavani is a, he's a very experienced centre forward who knows how to, how to play defenders in a way that maybe other players in Manchester United in recent years don't know how to do it. And he really did put him through the ringer in the, in the few minutes he was on. And uh, the other thing with this game is, is the fact that, like, you know, it, Liverpool have just kind of stopped scoring. Uh, you know, that's another... Yeah. It's the first time they haven't scored at Anfield since 2018. They, they had a nil-all draw with Newcastle. They drew one-all with, with West Brom. Like, I know they beat Crystal Palace 7-0, but uh, they've played a, quite a few games since then, it turns out, because mm. uh, they come thick and fast these days. But other than that 7-0, like, it's almost starting to look like an anomaly because after that result at Crystal Palace, it was almost ominous that, okay, Liverpool are going to walk this league now. They've figured out everything and they're just yeah. going to destroy everyone. But since then, like their form has been pretty dreadful. Like They've not played very well. They did, they did lost to Southampton as well. Yeah. Um, you know they didn't score in that either and they like I think they've done enough to score in those games but they've never done anything to really put it beyond doubt that they definitely should have scored like they the the chances they're getting aren't the ones that are like oh my god how do they miss they're them not they're not tapping yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah they're more like oh they could have scored those I guess or they're they're accumulating enough chances that maybe one of them should have got in by now which is why they're kind of registering on the uh, XG statistical models that various yeah. uh, people have but you you watch them and they're just not that convincing you know they they uh, they're just not performing to the level that, w- that we expect from them and 
uh, you know, the, the fact that Maynard grew into the game, I think it should be a bit worrying for them just in terms of their fitness levels because they've had this break now uh, and they came out flying the first 30 min- yeah. minutes, which is why I think Maynard were right to set up the way that they did because if they ran out at Liverpool from the get-go, I think they could have been decimated uh, mm. and the game just gone beyond all doubt then. Like, they were right to wait till kind of the 30-minute mark before they kind of started to, to gain hold of possession a bit more and try create something a bit more. Um, but uh, the fact that they, they kind of burned out after an hour, after 70 minutes, after already having what will probably be the longest break they have between now and the end yeah, of the probably. season uh, is a bit concerning. Uh, you know, they play again midweek uh, against... Um, who do they play midweek? I've already forgotten. Um, is it Burnley? Yeah, they play Burnley midweek, oh. which you'd expect them to win that game. Still not but, a fun uh, place they, to go. <laughs> uh, well, that one is at Anfield, to be okay. fair. Um but after that, they have the FA Cup game against Man United, and then they have a couple more Premier League games before the Champions League comes back. Yeah. Um. So you know this should be where they start picking up a couple of results to start banking some points before the fitness goes again. But if the if the fitness already isn't there and they're not picking up the results, like it is a bit concerning that if if this rot does continue, they could get dragged into a top four race instead of a title race. Uh, so they they desperately need to beat Burnley in this next game now. I think is the kind of the big ramification of this result. Yeah, I don't think their season's over if they don't beat Burnley, but yeah, it is it is a focus point now that they have to, mentally, they have to win this match. I think they're, the way they've stopped scoring, it's a few factors. I think the their strikers are trying to force goals in in a way that they weren't in previous years because when things go against you, you try and make it work even more and harder. And that's why, you know, Sadio Mane had a bad game against Southampton and he could have put a few chances away. Mo Salah is just running and running and running and, and, and not making the passing movement that, that maybe he would make if he was you know in the goals this season. Firmino, obviously, we've talked about as well. The other thing is I think there's a bit more caution in their play, partially down to injuries, partially down to not wanting to be caught out. And as you saw against Manchester United, they got caught out on a number of occasions just on a simple counter-attacks at their own when they had the ball, you know, corners or anything like that. It, it, it's a concern and that's why they're playing a bit more within themselves the other thing is is something that I noticed and I think again this goes back to Sky commentary of, of Gary Neville was giving out about Paul Pogba playing right back Paul Pogba was playing right back because they were doubling up on the Liverpool fullbacks to stop them getting crosses in and stop them getting the ball to discourage the ball being played to them that's one of the reasons Thiago made so many like not so many but some of his failed attempts passes were to those areas that Manchester United just kind of snuffed out any Liverpool player near the ball so it just went out of play needlessly that you know that's the thing I think teams are doubling up in these fullbacks they know so many chances come from those positions that if you just put an extra man there you lose a bit of attacking but you stop Liverpool um, and I think it's something that. Klopp and, and the Liverpool coaching staff are probably working on at the moment to try and figure out how to how to resolve this and to give a bit more time and space to their creative outlets at fullback. And and just for to go back to where we started the conversation, I think the reaction to this match was kind of it sums up the the kind of negative media landscape that football finds itself in at the moment where I think a lot of people going into the game obviously was hyped up because, you know, it's the top two teams in the yeah. table. It's it's Man United and it's Liverpool. It's already a big rivalry and, you know, people wanted it to be a, a goal fest or something interesting to happen narrative-wise, but a nil-nil draw kind of reset everything and it meant nothing really moved forward in the story. Uh, and, and it meant that, you know, at the end of the match, you know, the no one's head was on a stick afterwards because yeah. everyone was kind of happy with it. And I think that was 
that's led to a lot of frustration from people, particularly neutrals, particularly the the media themselves, who they don't really have anyone that they can they can lay kind of blame at their feet, yeah. or they can say, oh, there's a lot of pressure on Solskjaer now after the result, or oh, Klopp has found himself in a spiral. Like there's nothing to really move any of the narratives forward, which is, I suppose, why so many people have found it frustrating. Because I think, you know, generally speaking, this was a, an intriguing game. It wasn't. It the most exciting game of the season it wasn't the most spectacular but it, it, the tension was there and it kind of reminded you of the kind of good old uh, the classic games of, of, of why uh, we watch football and why these high stakes games are so interesting because you know if one player makes a mistake if Harry Maguire makes a mistake or if Lindelof doesn't get that tackle in that, that weird kung fu scissor kick <laughs> that he did in the box you know one little lack of concentration like that and it completely costs the team a game like that it did. It didn't happen in the end. That like the, everyone remained focused, and you know that's to everyone's credit in the end. But uh, you know th- that just goes to show the stakes that are in these big games, and that's what makes them so exciting. Mm. And um, you know, n- in the end, nothing really happened. But life moves on. Like there's another game in, in Tuesday and Wednesday. I thought it was a, a really big overreaction um, for people to suggest that this game is really boring and really uninteresting. Like I think there was a lot going on there. You just had to kind of. You didn't even really have to look for it. Like, it was no, there. Um, there was chances. It, there was good play, yeah. Yeah, it was a bit strange, really. Um, and, and like, there was good play. Like, I, I actually think uh, that Bruno Fernandes chance, like, a lot of people were critical of Fernandes that he kind of he had a bad game, the game. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, you know, I think maybe when may not have played this kind of football and play these big games, he does tend to disappear a bit because the whole game goes through him. But when they don't have a whole game to play he doesn't yeah. show up as much because, you know, he's there as an attacking outlet, not as a yeah. defensive outlet. So that that's just natural, I think. And he is a bit tired as well because he's, he's played the most minutes of any of that United team. So he is going to be the most tired of any of them. And, and it showed near the end of the game. But he did he did fashion that chance through a nice move down the left. And, like, there's been a lot of talk of, like, oh, man, I don't really know what to do with the ball when they get it. Like, I don't think that's necessarily true because... This move just down give the, the left ball with, to Bruno. That's, with, the, that's the plan. But this, the, the move, like this, is a coordinated move that they do, uh, and it's come off quite well for them in the past. And it, it fashioned the best chance that they had all game when um, uh, Rashford picks up the ball on the left wing. Shaw overlaps uh, down his left. He plays the ball straight to Shaw. Shaw runs down the line, and he's actually gotten quite good at this. Like he, he can beat his man. He can get down the line, and he finds his man almost every time he pulls the ball back and Bruno's in the right spot and it's a good save by Allison in the end with his feet a De Gea save uh, ironically um, so like I think this is a move that, that Man United have up their sleeve like and it goes to show that the relationship between Shaw and Rashford like that's why Shaw's getting in ahead of Talese and the team because they they have a really good partnership like mm-hmm. I, don't, I, think, I don't think Rashford had his best game either. I think he was solid enough. Like he, he, he wasn't terrible or anything. But I think the partnership that they have is a strength and can make them better than the sum of its parts. Um, so like I think that's something to kind of keep an eye out for with Man United as well. Like the partnership between those two, I think is quite exciting. I'm so happy, believe me. I'm so happy. Happy New Year. There's midweek Premier League action set for this week, but uh, will we see Aston Villa play ever again? I don't know at this stage. Like, uh, what is like? I, who knows what this story is? So that we don't know specifics who's out and who's not out. But that yeah, they're they're what four matches potentially in in hand in tenth place at the moment. They could climb the table if they played all of their matches. But who who knows when and if those matches will ever happen? Um, yeah, it'll be. 
it'll be interesting to see that's Man City I feel for they could have gone top with with a victory over Aston Villa and if that match doesn't go ahead they're just going to be in whatever second or third or whatever they whatever position they're in at the moment yeah they're in second yeah yeah so yeah it'll be it'll be a very it'll be very sad for Man City although you know I think they'll they'll live with it and I think Villa will probably be happy out if this game gets cancelled again because as you mentioned to me earlier, the training ground has been closed. I know they can do a lot of personal training and stuff like that, but you know, against a team like Man City, it probably does help to have a bit of more shape or a bit more set pieces designs or anything like that that can happen beforehand. Any any type of prep will probably help against Pep. Yeah, like uh, it's been oddly quiet as to what's going on at Philly. Like normally, uh, like the Man City training ground was shut down as well. I think the Fulham was as well. But we heard what was going on pretty quickly in in those situations. Like the Man City ground was only shut for a couple of days. Um, and I'm pretty sure some of the headlines have said that it's been a severe outbreak, which I don't think we've had to describe any of the other, um, other situations like this at other clubs. So like it is concerning, like how are, are some of the players like really badly affected by what's going on? Like if, if so, that could really derail their season. Um, like they're they're on twenty six points now, which means they'll be safe from a relegation if they completely collapse. Um, but yeah, it, it would be worrying if uh, some of their players are really badly affected. Maybe it's the coaching staff that are really affected. Like we know, Dean Smith was out as well. Um, you know, it's so unclear what's going on. It's very hard to do anything other than just speculate on it because so little has come out. Um, but you know, we hope everyone there is doing all right, and we hope that they can get back to training soon. I am spe- skeptical that that match goes ahead, like, yeah. a, and it's a pity because that's a game that you know we would have been, been really looking yeah. forward to. Yeah, um, the both teams are in great form going into it, and they've both played some great stuff this season. And Villa, particularly in the big games, have been quite exciting. Um, so that 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 that's a disappointment. Like, even if it did go ahead, I wouldn't expect much from Villa just because while they've been able to do personal mm. training maybe some of the players are, have been un- unable to do that if they've been feeling ill um, and you know we've seen the effects that that can have on players like Kai Havertz and Paul Pogba this season we've yeah. seen even just what ha- having a break could mean like maybe it'll benefit them in the end if, if everyone is just being overly precautious and it ends up being a period where they're able to rest up a bit yeah um, they just play 10 matches some- in June yeah, the, they have so many games in hand that even that would come back to bite them. So, yeah, yeah it's, it, hopefully this week we get uh, a bit more news on that and hopefully yeah. the game against uh, Newcastle that they have on Saturday can go ahead. Uh, be a bit more optimistic for that. Um, but, yeah, I'd be sceptical about this one on Wednesday. The the other games, uh, Leicester-Chelsea on Tuesday could be very exciting. Where do you see that one? Well, Danny Drinkwater has gone to uh, Turkey, so that's the end of the Danny Drinkwater derby for the time being. Um, it's two teams who have who have kind of come come away from having a bit more poor form. Uh, Leicester a few weeks now back into winning ways, and and Chelsea just back this weekend. So, you know the 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 general design of the season sees Chelsea win this match, but you know Leicester City I think are due a win in, in a big match like this, and I think it it might be their time to really put. Uh, put Frank to the sword. Like I don't think his job will be in risk in midweek, but it could start the the tippity-tappity trail towards him being let go by Chelsea Football Club. We'll see how it goes. Um, but my my inclination is that Leicester will, will come on top in this match. 
Yeah, I think this is the most exciting game of this midweek set of games. Like, I was this FA Cup next week, but we don't really... Do we really want to talk about the FA Cup? I, I, I don't. Um, Liverpool so, have um, to play I'm, Man United, and there has to be a winner. So, Yeah, someone has to score a goal, whether it's well, even just in the penalty shootout. Penalty shootout. Uh, but uh, this Leicester-Chelsea game, I think, should be quite exciting. Um, Leicester are... They're they're a weird team, but they they refuse to draw any games. I know they're drawing as many. I know, so disappointed. Um, yeah, it was that darn late equaliser. Like they could have just left it be, like just for the sake. Um, Keep that perfect. Right yeah, uh, but you know, I think Leicester Chelsea games in the past have been quite entertaining, uh, and they're two teams that kind of match up quite well here. I think and. Leicester have a few players coming back from injury as well. Um, Madison's in great form. I think Verdi is actually maybe a doubt for this game, so hopefully he does play because Verdi is one for the occasion, of course. Um, but Madison has been very exciting in the last few weeks. Another goal from uh, against Southampton, and and that was a, a pretty well controlled victory for them as well against a tough Southampton side. Uh, Southampton who had just beaten Liverpool, as we mentioned earlier, like they're they're a decent team themselves. Um, so, you know, it was a very well-controlled game. A lot of players kind of coming to the fore. They have a lot of different creative outlets. They they can hurt teams in, in a lot of different and interesting ways. Um, so it'll be interesting to see as well how, how Chelsea deal with that. And uh, what, what starting 11 uh, Frank chooses in this game will no doubt be uh, under immense speculation uh, because he's been chopping and changing so much that it's going to be something we really have to look out for before the game even kicks off. Yeah, I expect him to do it again. I expect him to put a bit more technically quick and and swift players into the team. Like we've talked about Havertz, Werner. You know, the, these players are going to have to come come back in and 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 try to do something. Speaking of Werner, we didn't mention it earlier in the Fulham talk, but he had a, an awful miss in like the ninety third minute when he was true, true clear on goal against Areola and he just shanked it wide. And yeah, will Timo Werner ever score again? That's the question, I suppose. Yeah, maybe maybe this will be the game he finally scores in. Mm. Uh, but until then, uh, hopefully we'll we'll get some action. Hopefully we'll get some insight into what's going on at Aston Villa. But some some interesting games ahead this week. Some some top of the table clashes as well with Man United playing Fulham and Liverpool playing Burnley. Like we should have plenty of uh, top of the table swings and roundabouts yeah. to talk about uh, next week. So. Uh, Until then, thank you for being here, Andrew. Thank you for having me, Declan. And uh, we'll be back again next week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, then don't forget to tell your family and friends about the show. Spread the word of the Total Football Takeover. The show can also be found on podcast services, including Spotify, by searching Total Football Podcast. You can also subscribe to my own Substack at declanhart.substack.com where I publish two weekly newsletters that will often go further in-depth on topics discussed during our shows. Those pieces can also be found on Medium at medium.com slash at cheesyheartbun, H-I-R-T-E. You can also follow Andrew on Twitter at Kanban27 and myself at cheesyheartbun. Most of all, thank you for listening and we hope to be in your download feed next week too. The more the merrier. That's what we always say.